There it is. Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here. And as we've discussed for the last couple weeks now, I have the interviews with Brian Litz and Amal Praslik, uh, Burger, Lapua, Capstone, Applied Ballistics. Uh, Burger has a new program that we're all going to talk about, a campaign that's going on, uh, you know, kind of a, a quarantine uh, education program. And so we got Brian and Amal on here to talk about it. Uh, welcome to the Pajama Pandemic, guys. How you doing? How you doing? Good this morning. Good, good. Everybody staying safe and and, and keeping healthy. Well, I yeah. I did see a dog. Somebody walking a dog without a mask, so I reported them to the local Gestapo. <laughs> nice. Everybody's a lot safer. Now. <laughs> you know what? I hear you get a free leather jacket with that, a long one. <laughs> so um while we got you guys on i'm gonna get you guys um you'll probably be better off just because we, we're, we're doing kind of a group you know text call here line um it, it just talk one at a time because you guys will step on each other a little bit so you know either say hey brian will take this one or am will take this one but just go into some background on this uh no bs bc campaign that you guys are putting out and, and this will be sort of a multi-episode program that we're doing because you have articles that are coming out. You have uh, basically media and content to back up uh, sort of this little educational program that uh, you're all working on. Right. Um, I'll, I'll lead off, uh, Brian, on, uh, on the, like the overview of why we're doing this. Um, so the, the no the no BSBC campaign is really it's a it's a platform for uh, us to kind of share our obsession with the science of ballistics. I mean we're we're really lucky at Capstone to have resources like Brian and uh, and then all all the smart people we have down in Mesa making the bullets and making the ammunition and our overseas partners with Fudabori and Lapua. So. We, and we know that a lot of the, our, our customers have the same sort of uh, obsession and interest in, in the science. So, um, and there's a lot of, we feel there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about information out there about ballistic coping. You know, what's, what's best? Is the higher number the best in a BC? Or are there other factors that people have to consider? And and in the end is how does it best benefit the customer? How does it best benefit the people that use the products? I mean, I've been a reloader and a competitive shooter for decades and, you know, you're always trying to increase your own knowledge base so that your own, whether you're choosing, you know, factory ammunition or if you're a, if you're a military or a law enforcement guy and you're using this stuff for work or if you're a hobbyist or a sports shooter, like how do you use this information to, to get the most benefit for your application? And we're putting up a lot of resources on our website, you know, our nobsbc.com. Um, resources, these articles that Brian has prepared um, with some, like you said, media and uh, images to help better explain these concepts. So I think it's, uh, it's really, it's a, it's, a, it's a means for us to kind of put out the information. We believe our products are, are 
uh, the highest quality with regards to the aspects that we're talking about, and also to help increase the general knowledge. The smarter the customers are, um, we feel that's the better for us. So uh, I'll let Brian give a, on the, the sciencey bit because I'm I'm a failed English major. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the no BS in, in my opinion where that comes in there's when when shooters come into the disciplines the various disciplines of precision rifle shooting um, the the serious ones are all very eager for knowledge trying to learn right so they go to the internet and they start reading and you know just soaking up everything that there is and unfortunately there's there's a couple influences on you know just in the internet in general that people look for information that make it difficult one of one of those things is marketing influences where you know everybody claims to have the best but you know that's true of every market um you know marketing kind of muddies the waters and another aspect is you know information coming out from people who who mean well but may may not have the best um the best information themselves like guys that have personal experience hand loading and want to give advice but you know, maybe don't realize the scope of their knowledge is just based on a, a narrow view of what they've done. So, you know, there's a lot of influences that make it difficult to for new shooters to sort of understand the first principles of the science behind what they're doing. And that's the essence of this campaign, in, in my view, is to uh, put the listeners of the Everyday Sniper podcast in direct contact with some experts in a bullet company in the field of ballistics to kind of get straight answers on how some of this stuff matters, why it matters and the context of it. You know, there's very few statements that you can make about BC or anything that is, that are absolute, you know, there's always caveats and nuances and those are the, the bits of knowledge that we're going to try to uh, convey in this series is, you know, to deliver a more complete understanding of what's going on, and, you know, not so much marketing or anecdotal information. Nice, nice. Yeah, because we see the guys out there that are, are sort of one inch wide but a mile deep, you know. And, and, and so that kind of has a big influence on what it – one of the ex examples we were recently talking about uh, to kind of back up what you were saying – is there's some videos out there, like one of them that comes to mind is the is is the Grandpa Gunsmiths who were like shooting down the 6.5 Creed more, you know, and people see that video because of the number of views. It's got a huge amount of views and they take that as being a credible source because the volume versus the information being conveyed. So as the volume goes up in, in the internet and in society, you know, like when, when, when we see high numbers, we take that as, as affirmation, like, Hey man, that guy's got big numbers. It should be right. Where sometimes it's like, we're just making fun of it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, but, um, with the articles you guys put out, you got, there's a couple right now and I have them in front of me here, which is great stuff. You got the, uh, where the BC, um, there, there's three of it. What is a BC in that series? You kind of go into what a BC is. You talk about the BC consistency and then how it affects in, in, in the looking at the accuracy and precision, short range versus long range as far as the BC. And I think I, I kind of want to start on that end because that kind of goes to the science and what you're talking about. 
we're the numbers, the marketing numbers, right? And, and so uh, maybe you can kind of go over a sort of a short range effect. And, and by that, I'll tell you like 400 yards and in versus saying like 500 yards and out type of effect um, to, to help people kind of understand that a little bit better. Yep. Okay. So I'll, I'll lead in on this, um, the science of ballistic coefficients. So to start with the basics, okay. I sometimes I'm guilty of just jumping in on the deep end, but I'm going to try to stick to the basics here, at least in the beginning and, um, describe what a ballistic coefficient is. So a ballistic coefficient is a, a measure of performance for a bullet. And it is specifically a measure of performance in relation to a standard. And so when you hear about a G1BC or a G7BC, the G1 and G7, those are standards, okay? They're tied to a specific projectile shape, and each standard projectile shape has a very specific drag model, aerodynamic drag profile that uh, describes the drag of that projectile at all speeds. And how your bullet compares to that standard is basically what a ballistic coefficient is. Um, to put a couple of the more used BCs into context, so the, a BC that's referenced to the G1 standard, okay, the G1 standard is, uh, represents kind of the old black powder cartridge rifle bullets that are flat-based, short blunt noses, um, and that is sort of the type of projectile that was in use whenever uh, ballistic coefficients came into common practice. And that's probably one of the reasons why G1BCs continue to be used today, even though bullets look much different from that. Um, these days with, you know, since then, we've got, we've put jackets on bullets, we've got smokeless powder, we're shooting them much faster and they're much more streamlined. So the G7 standard projectile is a, a sort of a longer, pointier nose, has a boat tail. It's much more representative of modern long-range bullets. And so... Um, the, the appropriate model to use to um, reference your, the BC of modern bullets to is the G7 standard. Now, what does that mean, the, the more proper or the appropriate model? What we're really talking about is how well the drag of your bullet that you're shooting matches the G1 standard versus the G7. And whenever I say matches, I mean how much does the BC change over velocity? So, Let's say you, you fire a bullet from the muzzle, it's got a muzzle velocity. And at that instant, it has a specific G1 and G7 BC at that speed. Now, as the bullet slows down, as it flies in a long-range trajectory, um, the, the drag of your bullet at every speed is going to start to compare differently to the drag of those standards because they diverge. They're different shapes. And because the drag of your modern bullet is better represented by the G7 standard, what that means in, in practical effect is the G7 BC of your bullet changes much less over its flight than the G1 BC does. And that, that matters in a, in a few ways. One of them is trajectory prediction. Um, another one is being able to compare bullets for performance. That's one of the main uses of ballistic coefficients is to say, hey, this number's higher, it's got better performance. But all of that can be sort of confused by these velocity effects. You know, when you compare the BCs of bullets, you have to be sure that you're looking at the same either specific velocity or range of velocity. Um, 
to sort of address this issue, uh, Berger puts G7 BC numbers on our bullets, and they're all averaged from 3,000 to 1,500 feet per second, which is more or less a representative range of velocities for long-range shooting. So that's kind of my top to bottom, what is a BC? It's a, um, it's a measure of ballistic performance that is related to a standard, and the G7 is a more representative standard for modern long-range bullets than G1. Uh, Brian, I got a question, and I couldn't find an answer to this. And I don't know, maybe you have some kind of inside knowledge for it. When they were looking at these back in the day, and, and if we go back to the World War II in the 1940s, they modeled G7 then. Do we know why like the military didn't use it and why for so long we did stick with that G1 and not go to the G7, even though it was modeled during like World War II? Because like reading on the Ingalls side of things, um, you know, he talked about with the Ingalls in G1, how sort of that standard, it was artillery and, and uh, it was like the Italians and, and, and everybody. When they were shooting the artillery, they were all using newer bullets each time or for artillery shells. And so they were like, well, this group used, you know, the British used this shell. And then the Italians used this shell, and then Ingalls came around and said, well, we're starting to get a little weird with shells now. We need to kind of fix this. But why did they never follow the G7 path like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? Well, for small arms, I, I think it's, there's a couple reasons for that. One is just a simple inertia, right? It became the incumbent. Uh, early on, and it was sort of the, the the only standard that people used, and it was not very well understood that there were options necessarily. You know, you open a reloading manual from from those days, and it just says BC. It doesn't even say that it's referenced. It doesn't even say what standard it's referenced to because the de facto standard was G1 for so long. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons that it, it was so ingrained so early on that um, the alternatives, there wasn't the sophistication in ballistic modeling that we have now. And so most people's needs were satisfied with G1s. And to be honest, the, the capability of the guns back then, you know, the, the whole system, you look at the scopes, the powders, the bullets, like everything that was available back then was practically limiting your range to within a thousand yards or less for the, I mean, talking practical yeah. uh, engagements. And so the benefits that you might see by going to a more appropriate drag model couldn't really be realized. You know, it wasn't the weak link in the chain. So it was good enough for what people were doing then. So I think that's one reason why it stuck around so long. I think another reason is um, it has to do with marketing. Um, whenever you reference the drag of your bullet to a blunt shitty old standard it's going to look a lot better right it's right. going to you get g you get g1bcs of like 0. 0.5 0. 6 0. 0.7 and if you're the ballistician in a in the you know in, in a bullet company and you go to your boss and you're like hey you know we really should be modeling with g7bcs and they're or well, what's that mean well it means that all of our bcs are basically going to look like they're cut in half and the marketing department shuts them down immediately and it doesn't go forward um, fortunately when I went to work for Berger and, you know, I had been talking about G1 and G7s for a while before then. And, you know, when I went to work there, the, the leadership was open to the idea of being more accurate, even if it gave the appearance that 
the bullets had lower performance just because the numbers were lower. Um, you know, we kind of had the, had the courage to be the first ones to step out as a, as a modern commercial bullet company in a competitive market and say, look, these are better numbers and we're going to tell you why. Never mind the fact that they look lower. It's actually going to be, you're going to be better off if you use these numbers. No, that makes perfect sense that the number, that, that pure fact that it's half the size on the box that would turn someone away who didn't understand it when they only sort of looked at it from a one number standpoint back in the day. But yeah, so it was like I was trying to dig into that and find like why did they avoid it it, but but it's 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 blank. There really isn't anything. It, it says they worked on it. It says they modeled it. You know, you can they read about it. And the only time I saw anybody look at those variations was sort of Ingalls talking. But that was through the artillery side of things with G one and not any of the other values. So I, it's just a a curiosity point that you know we didn't go in that direction. And it makes perfect sense that it, it's a it's a sales tool for a company and why would they want to cut their number in half? So I, I get that. Mm. No. Amel, you still there? I'm here, Frank. I, I was just going to add to, to that, that, you know, you know, without, you know, back then, you know, uh, you know, Frank, you and I are fairly close in age and, you know, uh, ballistic solvers really didn't exist in a, in a format that you could use them as a user back then. So, you know, most data that was printed out on tables was kind of like just, okay, here's a basic table, but go out and confirm it by live fire and write it down or memorize it. And that's how people manage data back then. So I think, you know, having the ability to, or even knowing that inputting a certain number, a G1 versus a G7, would give you maybe more or less accurate uh, ballistic results uh, for trajectory, it really wasn't an issue until those kinds of, those kinds of things started, you know, where all of a sudden you could go onto the internet and go to JVM and input stuff and try to get a trajectory. So I think, you know, it all really has come to a head, especially now that everybody's got a ballistic calculator in their pocket on their phone. No, so for sure. Now that that's the driver. I, I and, and and you're right and and I think if we and, and Brian can correct this or whatever most of the time the BC like back in the day with me like shooting the 173 grain special ball there was no concept of a BC I couldn't tell you what the BC of that bullet was because it, it to me it seems like coming up at that era era um it that it you know BCs were internal to the company more so than the end user because they just gave us inches a drop, which then we translated to our dope. And, the, and you know, they, right. they had the big numbers of inches a drop exactly like you were saying. And it was designed to hit an NRA six by six target, then dial into the center and then write that down. So there really, did you need a BC? Right. Exactly. You did it. I mean, because, and also as Brian mentioned earlier, engagement ranges were fairly short, you know, so, you know, with special ball or whatever it was, you really weren't, you know, I'm going to take my rifle out today to triple C in Texas, and I'm going to take a shot at that 1,300-yard target. That's two minutes of angle, you know, in size. That just didn't really happen back then. The majority of data that I found going back in the day, and and Brian's probably seen this as well, um, 
400 to 700 yards is where they looked at a lot of this. Like a lot of it topped out at 700 and a lot of it worked in that 400 yard zone is so in my personal research, it seems like that, that long range for this, these tests were between that four and 700 yard area. Yeah, the BC, when you're talking ranges like 400 yards, um, you know, 500 yards, it's, it is not that impactful at those distances. And the, you know, the reason beyond just the basic reason of that being short range in particular, the reason it isn't highly important over short range is that BC and drag is, it has a cumulative effect on the trajectory, meaning in the First, starting from the first yard, it makes zero difference. And then every yard further out you get, um, the BC becomes more and more important. It, it culminates more with distance and time that the bullet travels. Whereas something like muzzle velocity, for example, that's not a cumulative effect. That's an initial condition. And so on your short range shots, like if you're looking to model a trajectory at 400 yards, your muzzle velocity is going to be way more important than your BC because muzzle velocity is an initial condition. It's going to have an effect over short range, whereas BC, it takes hundreds of yards before an error in BC would become apparent. And when you look at, you know, how engagement ranges are getting pushed today and, and all, you know, sports and, and theaters, it is, you know, it's becoming way more important to have more accurate BCs because, at those long distances, any error in that number is going to mislead you about, you know, what the bullet performance is, what its trajectory is going to be, all that stuff. Um, so there's, I'm going to take this chance. There's, we have a list of questions too that came in through the burger site, uh, the no BS BC, uh, com. And so the three questions related directly to what we're talking about, I'm just going to knock them out. Nice. So, uh, one guy says, I hope it's touched upon how G1, G7, BC changes over range and based on weather events locally. Um, he said, it's hard to get him to believe that BC changes, get people to believe them. So um, I already addressed that how G1 and G7 changes over range. Um, it'll change much less for G7 than G1 because G7 is a better model for modern bullets. And the other one, this is, I like to dispel this one, how weather affects BC. So it's kind of like an illusion. Um, air density and BC have the exact same effect on a bullet's drag. So if you increase the air density by 5%, that has the exact same effect as decreasing the BC of your bullet by 5%. Um, so when you go to higher altitude, all else being equal, you'll hit higher. Well, that's not because the BC of your bullet changed. It's because the air is thinner up there. And it, it can be confusing and you're tempted to say that uh, the weather affects your BC. There, it's, it comes down to words, but it's, it's, if we're trying to understand first principles here, those words matter. And weather doesn't change your BC, it changes the air. And they look the same. Um, another question, at what velocity range is the new 65-144 long-range hybrid target uh, published BC valid? Um, so for all burger bullets that we advertise BCs on, the velocity range is averaged from 3,000 to 1,500 feet a second. Uh, that goes for that bullet too. Uh, it says, should I use it beyond 800 yards? Um, 
that as soon as your bullet falls below that 1500 foot per second, you can expect its BC to maybe start varying from that window. And that can be handled with more sophisticated drag modeling with custom drag models that we'll get off into another part of the discussion. But to answer that question, 3000 to 1500 feet a second, if you're anywhere in or near that range, you're going to be good. Um, and there's a third question related to this. Um, as your bullet slows down in flight, the BC gets lower and lower. What kind of correction to use to make the adjustments necessary? Again, that goes to um, CDM, custom drag modeling. Uh, I know it's not necessary at 1,000 yards or less, but it sure seems to make a difference at 1,500 plus. Uh, through testing I've done, I've noticed roughly a 3% decrease in BC for every 300 feet per second, slower the bullet travels. Am I right in thinking this way? So those numbers, 3% for every 300 feet per second, I'm sure that's perfectly valid for some bullet in some velocity range, but the real broader perspective here is that there is not a general rule that applies to all bullets as far as how much its BC changes with velocity. Um, it may be 3% every 300 feet per second through transonic, uh, but not at supersonic. Uh, another bullet, you know, it's, it's just all over. The, way, the bullets, the drag of a bullet, especially at transonic, is like a fingerprint. They're all different, and the BC, the drag model comes close to modeling it, but to really accurately model the drag of a specific bullet, you would need a custom drag model to do that. Yeah, and, and I was just, um, no, that that's that's exactly it, and, and I just lost my point all of a sudden, but yes, this this velocity window, I, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not linear, right? The, the the numbers yeah. it's not something that's a straight line that's what people are looking to to put their thumb on it they sort of want a rule of thumb they want something that that goes in a line they can follow where what you're saying is it's all over the map and while he may see a three percent and that's valid for him uh I may see two percent or one percent and Emil may see five percent in his system and it all just sort of depends on all the variables put together. Um, versus a straight line to say this is what's going to happen. Right. That's exactly right. It's very, very different. Like I said, it's a fingerprint. It's like comparing. If you look at your fingerprint and mine, you could try to draw conclusions about some very tiny local area of comparison, but those comparisons wouldn't extrapolate to the entire. You couldn't convert them. Um, so since we're right here on this topic about BC decay with velocity, um, I'm going to touch on another, I'm not sure if I, it's exactly a question in here, but it's a, a common idea that um, I think many shooters don't necessarily understand. So shooters see the BC decreasing as the bullet slows down. The G1 BC in particular decreases a lot as the bullet approaches transonic. And a, a common way that that's explained on the internet, I'll bet you four out of five times it gets explained this way. And it's, and it's, partially true. The way that's usually explained is the bullet losing stability. So the explanation is that the bullet enters transonic, its stability is challenged, it starts flying with some pitching and yawing, and that adds to the drag, and that's why the BC goes down at transonic. Well, that can happen also, but even a bullet that is flying perfectly point forward with no pitching and yawing, you will see its G1 BC drop at transonic for the simple reason of how that bullet's drag compares to the G1 standard. Now, in addition to that, baseline 
uh, drop-off that you'll see in D.C. In addition to that, it may also be true that the bullet suffers some stability issues and starts flying with with extra induced drag from flying with pitching and yawing, and that may be why you see the G1 BC decay even more than it would otherwise. So there, there's a couple reasons why the BC changes, especially a lot at transonic. Um, it's and it's a, not just because of the stability. It's all the 168's fault. <laughs> yeah, the 168 really magnifies it for us. And, and everybody, and that was the most common bullet ever, still probably now. And, and everybody sort of defaults to that. That experience is kind of how I see it, that we've all had experience with a 168. We've all seen these effects in some form or another, whether they're amplified through time or, or, or you know, uh, the story. But it, it seems everything goes back to that. And, and you guys have done such better jobs with a lot more bullets that it, that, that becomes not, again, it's no straight line, you know. Yeah, there's a lot more bullets these days that are transonic stable than what used to be because we're coming to understand what, what improves that. And, you know, to be fair to that, to that little 168 grain bullet, you know, that thing was designed to shoot 300 meter competition. Uh, back in the, you know, back in the, in the sixties, um, when that bullet was, it was partially, it was, uh, the, the army marshalship unit, um, and Sierra kind of combined for that bullet. They used it for 300 meter rifles and they were usually shot with one in 14 twist barrels. And if you've ever taken a box of federal gold medal 168, if you shoot that out of a one in 13 or one in 14 twist barrel, it shoots like a bench rest rifle at out to about 300 meters past that. It doesn't shoot very well. And that was like, it was just, everybody like, well, it's accurate at this range. It must be accurate everywhere else. They didn't understand, you know, a lot of those issues, um, but it was really never designed as a long range bullet. It's something that, you know, just like the government using the one size fits all um, kind of template, try to make it into the total competition bullet. But it was designed for 300 meter shooting. Very cool. And hey, Brian, I got a, a quick question for you about that. Because so when when you say you're in that 3000 to 1500 foot per second range, because we're talking muzzle velocity BC here. Like one of the examples I'll tend to use with people because they, they always say, you know, the higher number we talked about picking the biggest number and different things like that a little bit, just touching on it. But if you're only starting, like if you took a 230 grain bullet and put it in a 308 and say the thing's going in, in, in starting point, 2300 feet per second. Well, you're starting at such a lower thing. It, it, it's, it, you know. It doesn't have that sort of time to, to slow down and ramp up. It's already slow. It's so close to that 1,500 to begin with. Can you kind of go over people how, because they always default to heavies, and we'll see guys trying to push a heavy bullet far too slow. I mean, I have guys that show up to class with like 2,450, you know, in a feet per second on a, on a, on a rifle, and, and even, you know, 6.5 Creeds that are 2,600. So it, it's they're starting at such a low number to begin with because they try to r run to the heavy. Can can you kind of talk a little bit about that 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 entry into it being that low? Yeah, 
Yeah, Frank, that was actually a point I remember agonizing over that decision um, about the velocity range to average BCs over because I knew that it was a decision that once we made it, the whole point is to standardize so that we can make comparisons, um, not just across what we have today, but across what we've had through time. So I wanted to pick a velocity range that, that we could stick with and that was defensible and technically correct. Um, and you know, 3000 to 1500, I remember agonite for the same reason you just said, well, a lot of bullets don't start that fast. Well, some start faster. Um, you know, how do we, how do we pick one range that, that will work for everything? And sort of, if you look at how the BC changes through high supersonic speed, there's very little change in the BC from, say 3,500 to 3,000 to 2,500 feet a second, the slower you get, the more they start to separate. And by the time you're down to 1,500 feet a second, that's where you've really seen your G1 drop off quite a bit and your G7 maybe just starting to look a little higher. And so sort of to answer your question, I think that it's handled, the slower muzzle velocities are handled by the fact that there isn't a great deal of sensitivity to that starting speed because in high, when I say high supersonic, I just mean, you know, Mach two and higher, anything 2200 and up is over Mach two, you know, roughly. So at, at those speeds, the BCs are really not changing that much. So it's not very sensitive to the exact speed. You could be 2,500, 3,000, 3,500, and your BCs all very similar in there it's the low end that you start to see a lot of the variability at when you start approaching transonic. And at that low end, we cut it off at 1500 feet a second. Um, just cause that's where things start to really diverge. And if you, if you don't want to skew your long range average too much, then you don't want to go too far, you know, too low. And also, um, you know, I, we're thinking, you know, for the, for the vast consumption of, the long range shooting market, you know, thousand yards is where a lot of people, that's where a lot of ranges are maxed out. It's the common use scenario. We want to make our numbers fit for the most common use scenario, the middle of the bell curve. So 1500 feet a second is a reasonable lower limit for guys that are shooting at targets at a thousand yards, um, especially hunters who need to retain a reasonable amount of energy on target. So those are kind of all the reasons that went into picking the high end and low end of that average range. And I think they're pretty, I mean, we could argue that a different range might be better for some reasons, but I think holistically, when you're talking about a standard, I think that's a pretty good standard range of, um, of velocity to look at. And granted, it won't be as attractive as like, if we, if we looked at G1 BCs at 3000 feet a second and advertised those numbers, well, we would be advertising much higher numbers, but sort of the, the, uh, the flaw or the, the fraud in that is that you're leading someone to believe that that's the performance their bullet is going to fly with for all of long range. And when they calculate a trajectory or compare it to another bullet, they're not really getting a good average performance number. They're getting the best case and then extrapolating that out through where, you know, the bullet isn't going to be flying that good. So Again, we'd rather put out accurate numbers that are a little more humble in comparison to others in the market, 
but are going to put shooters on target and be an honest representation of performance. No, nice. And I, I agree with that range. And I like I like where you are with that. And I think it's good. But I think where the, the, the breakdown is and maybe and let me kind of throw this out there for people where. OK, so if 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 you're going to a heavy and you're looking at the number and and say and I'm just going to, you know, we're, we're inventing some numbers here. We'll, we'll be honest. But if if you're looking at that 1500, you're looking at to stay supersonic at your intended target range. And when we think about a thousand yards, we want to just be sort of crossing that 1300 right around the thousand yard. Right. That's kind of the mindset is when we look at that bullet, that caliber and what we're doing, we should be that we'll call it your 1500 yard zone at your intended target range. So if a guy goes heavier and let's say 1500 crosses right around 800 meters, right? Or 800 yards. So it, it's, he, he's shooting from to a thousand around 800. He's starting to pass 1500. So between 800 and a thousand, now you are starting to get some BC variation because it's slowing down. But if a guy is shooting a heavy, really slow and he's crossing 1500 at 500 yards, that's a much bigger variation of 500 more yards of changes versus like 200 yards of changes. Y- y- am I kind of like wording that correctly to sort of um, explain that band, that velocity band a little bit better? Well, the, the adjustment I would make to, to what you explained, Frank, is that if you see, so let's say you're starting out at 2350 muzzle velocity with a heavy high BC bullet. I would expect that bullet to retain 1,500 feet a second to a longer distance than, um, than the other case. But the, the principle of what you're saying applies. The longer the bullet flies below 1,500 feet per second, the more error uh, you're going to see in your trajectory predictions, whether you're talking 800 to 1,000 or 1,000 to 1,200, whatever distance range that falls in, um, that's where you're going to see errors. Now, I, you don't have to worry about them showing up right away because here's something about uh, ballistic modeling that, that may not be obvious until you think about it. And then you realize that it is obvious. And this AMO will recognize this because the same principle goes for, um, for calling the wind. So the, if you have an error in wind assessment or BC modeling, uh, near the shooter, like in the first few hundred yards, if you have an error there, that is a more consequential error than having it at the end of the trajectory. Cause remember, this is a, a cumulative effect. So if you have a cumulative error that starts early on, that's going to hurt you a lot more than if you take it in the end. Like, let's say you have a, let's say your BC is perfect just cause we're talking. Yep. Let's say it's perfect out, out through 800 yards. And then it starts to diverge. Um, and for the last 200 yards, your bullet is flying with a increasingly diverse BC from what you're modeling. Well, that's only 200 yards. Like that error isn't going to steer that trajectory model too far astray in the last 200 yards. It only has 200 yards to culminate. Um, you're at lower speed. So the aerodynamic drag in terms of like force isn't as great. So you'll suffer a lot less from that error near the end of your trajectory than you would at the beginning. Um, so in, in that way, I would even say that you could 
justify looking, you know, as your bullet falls below 1500 feet a second, you probably won't see uh, error diverge in your ballistic solution, you know, for another few hundred yards after that. Um, I, I'm just remembering something that Ken Ayler would say that, oh, I think it, a BC, I, I may not get this exactly right, but he was talking about G1s and he said a BC is good to like twice the distance or one and a half times the distance that you measure it at. So if you measured it at 800, you could use that BC all the way to 1200 because by the time it culminates any meaningful error, you have to be outside the window for quite a long ways. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense that where you're measuring it, you get that little bit of, of uh, space, that safety zone. You have, you have, you have a safe space around it. And, and that's, yeah. and, and that's, that's a good, I think that's what people are kind of look for is those type of, it's a truism in a way, but it's a little bit of a rule of thumb, you know, and I think people like that idea. I mean, just talking the heavy and light, cause I just shot it this week. I, I happen to have uh, uh, some loads, the uh, uh, some 140 grain loads that were going 2650 out of a particular barrel. And then my prime loads were going 2835. And I shot them all together at ele- I shot them at a thousand eleven twenty five, but I shot them at eleven twenty five. In the one thirty grain bullet, less drop, less wind than the one forty. And there was you know one hundred and fifty, almost one hundred and seventy five feet of difference in muzzle velocity. So real world, like when I'm out there shooting it, I used um, one point two milliwind to hit the eleven twenty five with the one thirty, but I needed one point six a wind to hit. The, the 1125 with the 140 and and that sort of goes against it but then you know the, the point I was showing was exactly what we've been talking about is that velocity uh, you know I, I, it was it was it was reduced to such a degree that I actually could see it out downrange you know mm-hmm. it, you know Frank one and one more one point on you know people trying to sh- always shoot the highest BC bullet they can find um, is the stability of that, you know, uh, is the bullet stable about, you know, someone sees a bullet in say 6.5 millimeter and it's in the 150 grain range. So like, wow, look at the BC on that thing. I'm going to shoot it out of my six, five Creedmoor. Um, and if, if that bullet is not stable, then that BC is compromised. Um, and so, you know, we've got a, we've got a free resource. I know a lot of people know about it and use it, but I like to point it out too, is we have a, a twist rate calculator, um, on our, on our website on burgerbullets.com. It's under resources and you can input, uh, there's a pull down menu for burger bullets. And if you want to use it for your own bullet, you just have to have some metrics in there, the length of the bullet, the BC, how heavy it is. And it'll give you a, a number on the bottom of us, a stability number on the bottom if your bullet is stable or not. And I think if you enter some of these really heavy bullets in, in commercially available rifles, they're on the margin of stability. And then you add that into a worst-case atmospheric condition, and it's not. And it, all of a sudden it's not jiving with the number that you're entered into your ballistic solver. Um you know, so that's I, I really encourage people to use that resource as a tool also when you're when you're selecting which bullet you're gonna shoot in your rifle. 
I think that, yeah, and I think that yeah, goes that- to what Brian was saying really quick um, about that elliptic swirl variation where it, it, it's sort of well, starting to yawn pitch a little bit more, and so the numbers start to come down quick. You know, so I think that's where where Brian was mentioning early on that that's the common uh, talking point that people use when it comes to uh, the the BC variation. Yeah, that uh, what I was talking about earlier had to do with transonic drag and the stability of a bullet there, and that's related because it is stability. But the twist rate calculator that Amos referring to it has to do with muzzle condition, so. You can see a, a, a depressed BC from right out of the muzzle. It doesn't even have to get to transonic, but you can measure it over 300 yards, a, a BC reduction for bullets that are not fully stabilized. Um, it'll still shoot good groups. The holes will still look round. You won't really have any indication that your BC is compromised um, if you're shooting short range. But if you shoot long range, you'll see that you know you're you're dealing with a, a depressed BC if your uh, stability factor is below 1.5. Um, and so, you know, whenever it's, it's relatively easy to put a BC number on a box of bullets because all you have to do is decide if you're talking G1, G7 and what the velocity band is, measure, you know, do live fire measurements and you've got it. There's very little subjective decision that goes into it, but stability is different. You know, it's really hard to pick a recommended twist rate for a bullet because you have no idea what altitude your shooters are at, what condition, you know, hot or cold conditions and what velocity they're shooting at. And those are all very influential to the stability of the bullet. So to say you need a one and eight, you know, to rec that's the minimum twist for a bullet. I mean, you really have no idea that that guy might go out with a one and eight. And if he's in absolute worst case conditions with a short barrel and low muzzle block, one and eight might not be enough, but in other conditions, if he's at high altitude and it's hot, you know, and he's shooting high velocity, should he might be able to shoot that same bullet with a nine and a half twist and, and have it fully stable. So that's the real value in that online stability calculator is it lets you get more, more of a grasp on what, you know, what the stability of your bullet is going to be when you shoot it in your gun, as opposed to the, the number we put on the box for everybody. It's, it's, difficult to pick one number to put on the box for recommended twist, but that calculator lets you narrow in on it for your own use. Nice. And it goes back to your fingerprint, right? Everything's slightly different. All Mm -hmm. these conditions are always changing. Um, seeing we're we're getting there and and kind of going up and I, and I want to, I want to kind of wrap a little bit of this up for you guys and not keep you forever. Uh, cause we, we have multiple parts with this series. We're going to be doing multiple discussions, but, um, let's talk there because this question came in early and I think you guys have it in front of you. So where do you usually, what's your general rule of thumb? Is it, is it, you know, look at your beat, your muzzle velocity for a calculator around that, you know, four to 600 yards and a BC eight to a thousand. Where do you tend to rule a thumb it for people to say, if you're going to, if you're going to look at a muzzle velocity tweak, use this band. If you're going to use a BC tweak, use this band. Oh, you're talking about truing? Yeah, with truing. Because didn't we have that question earlier? I think Emil read it. That was one of his first ones that people wanted to know, sort of, where do you where do you consider truing muzzle velocity versus where do you consider truing BC? Yep. Yeah, that is one of our questions. So um, the way I would answer that is to to go back to the and, – and, again, like, there, there are so many topics in ballistics uh, that appear to be all different 
But if you really grasp the first principles of the science, there's, there's a much shorter list of things to understand. So coming back to the principle of muzzle velocity being an initial condition and ballistic coefficient being a cumulative effect, okay? Because of that, what you want to do is you want to true your muzzle velocity over the first leg of the trajectory, whatever distance that is. I wouldn't suggest doing it at 400. That's too close. Um, the, the best advice, I think, is to true your muzzle velocity where the bullet is approaching transonic. Um, so you get a good truing target at whatever transonic is. Now, you don't need to split hairs here and get a target at exactly 881 meters. You know, just whatever a, a target that you can observe your impacts at about transonic range that's where you want to true your muzzle velocity. So now from there back to the muzzle, you've trued your initial condition of muzzle velocity. And then from there out, if you have a chance to true on a target that's, you know, I would go to the furthest possible target that you could, you know, clearly observe impacts and then true your BC or your DSF at that farthest distance. And it, it goes back to the, it comes straight from the principles of, Muzzle velocity is initial, so you do it first. BC is cumulative, so you do that second. Now, that's my general answer um, that that usually applies, but there are some gotchas, like some caveats to that. Like, what about the guy who has a chronograph that he trusts and says, look, man, I measured it. It's 2650, but when I true it, it says I have to be at 2630. Well, that's kind of a conundrum because now you've got you know, multiple conflicting sources of information and it can be difficult to know what to do in that case. Um, the one comment I have on that is that a lot of chronographs are less trustworthy than uh, their owners like to think. But to be fair, that's less true these days. Like the magneto speeds and the lab radars, they are way better than a lot of the light screen chronographs that we used to have. Um, and so it really comes down to what information you have more confidence in. A uh, quick question with that too. Um, for people who don't have access to ranges that far where, cause I mean, what a six, five Creed in like out here, out West transonic can be 1400. And you know, where, where do you go when, mm -hmm. if a guy only has access to a thousand yard range for his max, you know, let's like look at uh, that you know, would you kind of change that or would you just do everything like 800 and a thousand? Would you do it 600 and 800? But for guys who don't have the access to sort of transonic, you know, cause I mean, if you're shooting a bigger cal, even like the 338s with guys, transonic can be beyond their, their practical range where they live. Right. So yeah, I would say get as close as you can to transonic on the range that you have. Um, and if you're maxing out your range and you're still not transonic, well, that's as good as you are going to be able to do. Truing is it's a learning exercise. You're teaching uh, your your input. So there are some. Up, oh, he cut. Did we lose him, Amel? Yeah, I think we just lost Brian, which we were kind of getting near the end. Amel's still on, aren't you? I'm here, Frank. I'm here. Good, good. Hey, oh, we, lo we lost Brian for uh, some okay. reason. I could probably bring him back. But we're reaching near the end, so uh, you and I can wrap up a little okay. bit in unless he calls back sure. in real quick.
But we're at the 50-minute mark, so I was going to close out with sort of that little truing piece uh, for everybody. But, yeah, Brian's connection just died uh, for something. I have, I, have, I have one sort of uh, footnote to truing. And this is, you know, Frank, I know that you've, you've trained people, you know, uh, for a living, and you see a lot of it. And, and I've, 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 I've done my share of, of, uh, of teaching from the platform and helping people learn how to shoot long range. You know, a lot of people, they want a true, but the ability, the grouping ability of their rifle doesn't lend itself to a good truing solution. You know, so if their rifle is uh, shooting 0.3 or 0.4 up and down at that extreme, at that extended range, and they hit the target that they're using the true one shot out of four shots, and they're like, that's it, that's my dope, I'm going to true off of that. Many times they're skewing their own data. Yes. So there, there really needs to be like a moment of, of honesty, that internal ethical dilemma. Like, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't true because if your rifle isn't capable of shooting, you know, probably 0.1 or 0.2 vertical, I wouldn't bother with truing at that range. Um, j- yeah, just a good, a great example because this happened this week on Sniper's Hide. A guy had some questions about truing, calculator, this, that, and the other. He was shooting an 8-inch group, and he was happy with it at 300 yards. And he was like, but my numbers are wrong. And, you know, the guys, rightfully so, on Sniper's Hide came back and said, dude, but your group is bigger than it should be. You know, you have to look at the practical reality of what you shot versus what you're trying to say. He wanted quarter minute accuracy in his solution, but he was, you know, uh, uh, over almost a three MOA shooter. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. His group was like 0.8 tall or something like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So it's hard to do that. Uh, Just to kind of wrap up, Frank, you know, we're... This is a this is a multi stage thing. We you know we're going to talk about a lot of topics. I do want to kind of uh, make sure people they go to our nobsbc.com website for all these resources, all these amazing articles that Brian has written. Um, he and he kind of goes down all these sort of rabbit holes. It's difficult to edit Brian because he has so much information um, and his he just his brain is so active. That once he starts writing, he wants to explain everything. So it's, these are great articles. And also our new bullets. You know, we, and the, one of the reasons we're talking about this stuff is because, you know, a lot of our new bullets, they really they demonstrate less than 1% BC consistency. So go to, uh, run to our website and check out our new bullets. We've got bullets for about every application. We've got an 85.5 grain 22 cal bullet. We've got a 109 grain uh, long range hybrid target bullet, which has been in constant demand since August. I mean, we have not stopped making this bullet since August. We've got a seven mil one ninety grain. We've got a, in three in thirty cal. We've got a two oh eight grain and a two twenty grain. And in six point five, we've got a one forty four grain. And uh, on Monday, we released a one fifty three point five grain. Nice uh, long range hybrid target. So. Check these bullets out and um, and use those resources on the website, and uh, and we've got a lot more to talk about. Yeah, sure. this is going to be multi-part for everybody, and, and there is a ton for us to go over. We're starting to see a lot of, like, the 22 stuff, just to start small and we'll work our way big. But the 22 stuff, we're seeing a lot of guys 
use the 80.5 and the 85.5 for the Valkyrie stuff on the hide. And the results are starting to roll in on that, so we can go into that. We got Q&A going on. There's Q&A on Sniper's Hide. There's Q&A where you can ask the questions at the Burger Facebook page. And we're reading them. Uh, Brian and Emil have them, so they're reading from that Q&A. I have the ones from Sniper's Hide. And we want to crawl, walk, uh, run with this because we do have so many episodes to do. Uh, a lot of us are locked in and we're doing all this stuff, but I appreciate um, the, the, the capstone umbrella to reach out and, and to do this with us and, and to make uh, Emil and Brian available. Uh, I think this is going to be a, a huge driver for um, you know the people out there listening to, to get this just a, a ballistic education. You know, where else are you going to get a master class on ballistics and you got access to both Brian and yourself um, to do this? So I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate the format, Frank. And uh, congratulations on your new book, by the way. I'll expect a signed copy in the mail. Oh, for sure, man. I, I'm actually just ordered cases of it because everybody wants me to sign it. So I'm going to be giving out more signed copies than I'll actually sell, but that's okay. But the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the books are giveaways anyway in a lot of ways, you know. But thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, stay on the line for two seconds, and um, I'm going to wrap up and end this. And then uh, so we're going to go with that. But uh, so just stay on it and we'll go and then I'll, I'll, I'll cut out with you and we could talk about later. Okay, Frank. All right, thanks. Thanks, guys. Don't forget to comment. Don't forget to go on the Podbean app and listen. And then, like I said, Sniper's Hide Facebook page uh, for the Burger No BSBC. Cheers. <laughs>